One of my favorite songs. Uh, Cindy said Victory in Jesus was one of hers as she was passing by getting ready to come up and do the communion meditation. And I like that one. In fact, I love, and one of these days I'll pull the recording out and play it. I love to hear David Bing sing that. Uh, David Bing is somebody who was told he could never, he would never get married, he'd never have a family because he was very handicapped, had a really bad speech impediment, and uh, was involved and is involved in ministry. Uh, one of the times that I heard him, he was taught, telling that story, and he said, and people said, I'd never get married, and he said, stand up, honey. And he said, isn't she beautiful? I didn't do too bad, did I? <laughs> but he sings that song, and, and wow, to see somebody. And, and when he was speaking, he said, uh, I accomplished all these things, and I'm handicapped. What's your excuse? But anyway, one of my favorite songs begins, Sing the Wondrous Love of Jesus. Sing His mercy and His grace. And as the chorus of that song begins, we proclaim when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. But you know what? I truly believe when the day of the Lord comes, some of us, if it's even one of the possibilities, this I don't even know, to be honest. I sometimes wonder if we are, we're going to know we are told who's there. But I'm not sure we're going to know who's not there. Because that would involve pain and suffering, wouldn't it? But if it is possible to know, I think uh, some of us will be surprised at who has been found to be walking the narrow path that leads to salvation according to Jesus' words and who has chosen the easy way out unfortunately which means it leads to eternal destruction and I am convinced that some people will be surprised when they see some of us there I, I know somebody there are some that will be surprised if they see me there the attitude they have Last Sunday I shared with you how during this season of Thanksgiving I'm thankful for the miracle of justification the gift of grace and the sacrificial death of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because without the miracle of justification without the gift of grace and most of all without the sacrificial death of my Lord and Savior I would be without hope. Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There was a song that rose to as high as 11 on the charge. Uh, right as I was finishing high school. It was sung by Peg, Peggy Lee the first time. Uh, and ex it expresses this thought of Paul. Looking at only what the world could offer. 
she sang. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep dancing. You see, and I, and I need to stress this point. If someone somehow, which I know will never happen, I know that without a shadow of a doubt, but if someone somehow proved to me today that there was no God, that the Jesus story was all just made up, fabricated. You are looking at one of the meanest people who has ever lived. I see no reason to worry about anybody else if there is no God. It would be back to the animalistic survival of the fittest and I'm going to make sure as often as I can that I'm the fittest and my family's taken care of if there is no God. You see, I don't have a hard time understanding why people are evil. I have a hard time understanding why anybody is good who doesn't believe in God. Especially the story I heard about a couple who had a severely handicapped daughter down in the muck and the marsh around New Orleans somewhere and a train went off the tracks and into that swampy area. And as the train was going beneath the water, they held up that daughter, severely handicapped, and she was saved and they both died. Where does that kind of altruism, that concern for others come from, if there is in fact no God? Our text last Sunday began with the words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now most interpreters of Romans agree that the righteousness of God is revealed not just in the gospel as it's preached, but primarily in the gospel as it is enacted by Jesus Christ on the stage of history. That is... The very deeds of which the gospel speaks are the revelation of this divine righteousness that brings salvation. I don't know how many of you, because the Christian churches and churches of Christ never emphasized it, but how many of you are familiar with one or more of the creeds? Do you realize that by and large every one of the creeds that I've studied talk about his birth and then what do they talk about next? His death. If that's all that's important is his birth and his death, why do we even have the gospel records telling about all the things he did in his life? I don't know who asked me, but I got myself into a little bit of trouble, as I often do. They were asking me about if I was all excited and ready for Christmas, and I said, well, to be honest with you, I'm not a holiday person. But secondly, from a theological point of view, my two favorite Gospels are Mark and John. You'll hear me quote from Mark and John more than any other Gospels. And guess what? 
Neither Mark nor John even tell about the birth of Jesus. And yet, they're complete gospel records, aren't they? Yeah. Something about what Jesus did. The very deeds that He did are the revelation of this divine righteousness that brings salvation. Of God being faithful to His promises. Of God being faithful to the covenant. And therefore the revelation of God's righteousness is not just a verbal disclosure to be captured by our minds. It's accomplished in the action and the operation that takes place in the historical arena. Douglas Moo says it, it's the uncovering of God's redemptive plan as it unfolds in the plane of history. Showing God's faithfulness to His promises. We were in a little store yesterday over in Grinnell. Nice, really nice store. And there were two nativity scenes. And Eric pointed them out to me because they were hand carved with like a where you go in, you drill, and then you carve out the figures and it was all one piece. And I said, yeah, now if we just had a skill song, we could go back and cut the three wise men out of there and put the dragon up on the roof. Uh, because the three wise men didn't make it to the manger. They were there two years later. And Mary and Joseph were already living in a house, the Bible says, not Chauncey. They got to a house, not to the manger. And Revelation says that the dragon was watching over, waiting for the woman to bear the child so that it could devour it. Something about what happened in the historical incidents as recorded in the Gospels is very important for us understanding that God was faithful in the fulfillment of His promises. And so the righteousness of God is a combination of His righteous character, His saving initiative, His gift of a righteous standing for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And it's His just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing righteous those of us who are really unrighteous. This is what we're really talking about when we speak about the gift of grace. Now, I want to emphasize one thing this morning that I haven't emphasized so far in these sermons on Romans. When we talk about grace, we need to understand that grace is not just the changing of, of, of a status free of charge. Grace, biblically speaking, is empowerment. It's giving us the power to do what we need to be doing. It's giving me the power as an unrighteous person, tainted by sin, to do good things that otherwise I wouldn't be doing. What's Paul say? The things I'm doing, I know I shouldn't be doing. And some of the things that I should be doing, I'm not doing. But grace empowers us to do those things. 
And despite the fact that Amazing Grace is one of the favorite hymns of a, of a lot of people, most people really think that if you just do your best, if your good outweighs your bad on some sort of scale, then somehow you're going to make it to heaven. We somehow miss in that song Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. In fact, I often hear church people say when a friend or a family member dies, often without regard for the way that that person was living, that they're receiving their reward in heaven. Or we'll see them again someday in heaven. Even though they might have never darkened the doors of a church on a Sunday morning. Had no concern at all about the bride of Christ. How can you say you love Jesus Christ? How can you say you're concerned about going to heaven and being with God eternally if you don't care about Jesus' bride? Marty, I've seen you hold Diane's hand, put your arm around her. I did the same last night. We were driving home. I'd reach over every once in a while and just hold Jesse's hand for a while. It'd be hard for you to have a real close friend of somebody that didn't like your bride, would it? Right. Yeah. Not going to be easy, Rich, is, is it, to be friendly with somebody that talks negative about your bride? And yet there are people out here claiming to be Christians. Claiming to be Christians who have no concern about the church, the bride of Christ. It's not biblical. And yet, there are many that are just as hostile to the concept of grace. That we're justified by faith. We struggle with legalism, being judgmental. We speak in terms of us and them. As if we were in any way good enough to even have the right to divide between us and them. I shared with you, how Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book The Cost of Discipleship spoke in terms of cheap grace. It's, it was the church for those many centuries just saying to people, oh, you're saved as long as you do your penance, as long as you do you know, the, the little acts that the church is calling for. But grace isn't free. Grace isn't cheap. And that's why I shared with you last Sunday this acronym. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. The late Dallas Willard put it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. And he's right. So notice with me again how Paul closed out what we have said was chapter 3. Where Paul has been speaking of both the law of works and the law of faith. 
Chapter 3 verse 31 says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, do we do away with the teachings of the Bible that say there are some things that we need to be doing, have to be doing, are to be doing? On the contrary, says by no means. We uphold the law. And so as Dallas Willard pointed out, it's not the effort. It's not the actions. It's not doing things. And by all means, how can somebody say, baptism can't save you, that's a work, but yet they'll say, well, come down front and sign this card as if those weren't works. You're still doing something. So let's see how Paul picks up with this as he continues. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Now I'm going to involve the whole fourth chapter, but I'm only going to read the first eight verses. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Paul has explained his gospel of God's righteousness, that is, justification by faith, in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And he defended it against his critics in 27 to 31 of that chapter. And in doing so, he also insisted three times that what he's talking about is attested by Old Testament Scripture. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 31. So the logical next step in his argument is to supply an Old Testament precedent or example. And he does that by choosing Abraham, Israel's most illustrious patriarch, and supplements it with David, Israel's most illustrative king. By the way, remember how Matthew introduced his gospel with, geneal with Jesus' genealogy? He said, it's the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now listen, and this is important. What Paul is doing as he continues now in chapter 4, which by the way is a horrible chapter division. Uh, you, you know, those didn't occur till hundreds of years later. What he's doing is to further clarify the meaning of justification by faith. And so here's the image I want you to think about. A paycheck stub. It's proof that you get what's coming to you. You've earned your paycheck. 
It has the number of hours you worked on it. It has usually a lot of times, sometimes even the hourly rate. But notice what Paul does. He says Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't get a paycheck. It wasn't wasn't something he earned. It was counted or reckoned to him as such. And he uses what Scripture says about Abraham and David to elaborate the significance of both words, justification, in terms of the reckoning of righteousness to the unrighteous, and faith in terms of trusting the God of creation and resurrection. Abraham and David show that justification by faith is God's one and only way of salvation. And it's not like a pay stub because we can't earn it and we don't deserve it. We instead need to be saying daily like Paul said, oh, what a wretched Man I am. But thanks be to God. So in the first five verses, what should stand out to us is that Abraham believed God. Paul begins with a question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Romans 4 assumes that we're familiar with the biblical story of Abraham. And in particular, with four of its chief episodes. First, that God called Abraham to leave his home. To leave his people in Ur. And he promised to show him another land, but he didn't even tell him where he was going. So how did Abraham show that he believed God? Did he say, okay, God, I believe that. Yeah, I can accept that you're calling me to pick up and leave and go somewhere. No! He showed that he was a believer by the fact that he got up and went. He got up and did something. Secondly, God made His promises more specific, identifying the land as as Canaan and declaring that His his posterity was going to be as numberless as trying to count the grains of sand on the sea. And yet, He was an old man. I I was talking yesterday to somebody and uh, I guess it was my son and daughter and and my daughter and Andrew, her boyfriend, and Jesse and Taylor, we're all there. And I, I said, I said, yeah. I was talking about this lady that I saw that said something, and I said, and she was an old lady. And then I paused for a second, and I said, but you know what? She probably wasn't as old as me now that I think about it. <laughs> and I'm only 69. How old was Abraham when he got the promise? What's the Bible tell us? He's a hundred years old. Now God bless you, we got 
Marie out at George 8. Can you imagine the look on Marie's face if, if someone said to her, Marie, you're going to bear a child and it's going to be a child of promise from God. And yet Abraham and Sarah, and I don't mean to be crude or tacky, this is just reality. Abraham and Sarah did something to make sure that that promise got fulfilled. Isaac wasn't told, or we aren't told that Isaac was born of a virgin. Right? 99. Sarah 90. God confirmed the promise. Fourthly, although Paul only hints at it indirectly, God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son. And again, what are we told is the proof that Abraham believed. He went up on the mountain, built an altar, put his son on the altar, and raised the knife. See, don't tell me don't try to tell me that as long as somebody has the right things between their ears, they're okay and they'll be in heaven. It has to be demonstrated. And it's interesting that if you listened in the verses that I read from Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith as the call to worship, these same four incidences are referred to again as evidence that Abraham was a man of faith. He did. He did. He believed. He took action. The fourth thing that is asserted in Romans, so verse 18 that we didn't read, is that in hope, he believed against hope. He said, this is not to say that faith and reason are alternative means of grasping reality and therefore mutually incompatible. It's not either faith or reason. No, faith always has a firm basis. In particular, faith is believing or trusting a person. It has to do with allegiance. And its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. My kids fell asleep driving home last night in the back seat. Why? Because they had faith in me as a driver. Otherwise, they'd have been wide awake. Now, I think Jesse has faith in me as a driver, but she was wide awake because she didn't have faith in the animals staying off the roadway. And so she was wide-eyed watching and spotting. In the next few verses, verses 6 to 8, Paul presents the experience of King David as David proclaimed God's blessings. It's a reference to David's blessedness and his joyous relief at having his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah forgiven. Really an undeserved righteousness that was bestowed on him. 
as it's described in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Paul probably turned to this psalm because of the rabbinical practice of interpretation that when two passages use the same word, then you try to figure out how you can interpret the one with the other. And so the verse he quotes in Psalm 32 talks about something being counted, something being reckoned. But I think there was also a deeper reason why David had this unmerited righteousness credited to him. It was because of faith. David had broken three of the Ten Commandments as he coveted Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then murdered Uriah. And the Old Testament sacrificial system made no provisions for premeditated sin. Are you aware of that? Go read through the book of Leviticus. Over and over again, it says, if the person commits a sin unknowingly or unintentionally. That's why Jesus in the temptation said, no, no, hey, we're not to put God to the test. It doesn't say anywhere in the Old Testament that you can do sin in a premeditated way and then expect to be forgiven. David's case was hopeless from a human perspective. And there was nothing he could do but cast himself on God's mercy. That's why F.F. Bruce says of Psalm 32, And if we examine the remainder of the psalm to discover the ground on which he was acquitted, it appears that he simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. Paul calls David blessed. And David twice calls himself blessed because when there was no work that could be done to atone for his sins, he was still forgiven. So the principle of faith, which is loyalty, which is allegiance, was mightily established and illustrated in the life of David Israel's greatest king. And so when Samuel's describing David, he describes him as a man after God's own heart for Samuel 13, 14. Listen to me. Nothing you and I can ever do will atone for our sins. No matter how good we are, it's not good enough. Our only hope is a righteousness from God. A righteousness from God that comes through our loyalty, our allegiance, our faithfulness to Jesus as true believers. So here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. My last point in this brief. The promises, they're available to me. They're available to you and to everyone afar off who believes. Abraham was declared a righteous man when he was a Gentile. And he remained a Gentile for some 14 to 29 years, depending on which historical points you look at, before the promises of being a nation, before the Jewish nation even came about. The affirmation and importance of faith was a Gentile principle long before it was a Jewish reality. Was Abraham obedient to the law? 
you better look at the time frame. Abraham was considered righteous. The law doesn't come in Exodus till hundreds of years later. So, it's attitude. And Paul, Paul's terms are pointing back to the act that made them a recognizable nation. Abraham is the father of uncircumcised believers as well as the father of the circumcised believers. But not on the ground of circumcision. On the ground of faith. Righteousness and His promised benefits has always come to those who live by faith. No one can keep the law perfectly. And that would be the requirement for salvation. You'd have to keep it perfectly. That's why trying to do enough to be saved only promotes defeat and pessimism. That's why I don't do New Year's resolutions. Because when you make a New Year's resolution, how do you feel when all of a sudden you realize, well, I haven't kept it? Some of you asked me what diet are you on when I started losing weight. I didn't go on a diet. Because I didn't want to not do the diet and then gain weight and, and feel defeated in doing it. I changed my lifestyle. That was the only way it worked. So when we went out to eat yesterday and everybody's ordering these big things, I'm looking and I'm thinking, good grief. I ordered soup and salad. And I was satisfied and I was full. So here's my challenge. Somehow we need to understand that we need to be loyal to Jesus. We need to make Him the Lord of our life. Why? First of all, because He can't be your Savior if He's not your Lord. You can't just come down front, sign a track, even get baptized... And then go back to living the way you were and expect to be saved. That's not biblical. Have you noticed how the chapter ends? Look down at verse 25. The chapter ends by saying, It is Jesus as Lord, not as Savior. It's Jesus as Lord who was delivered up for our, and you can certainly say my, for our transgressions and raised for our justification. And you see, this is what I think Paul was doing in this letter, by the way. I don't think Romans is a compendium of Paul's theology. If it is, he forgot about the theology of the church. It's not in there. 
What Paul's doing in this letter is he's getting ready to go to Rome and he's saying, hey, some of you are Jewish as Christians and some of you are non-Jewish, Gentiles as Christians and neither of you are doing right because you're not living in unity. You're not living in love. I almost boiled over this week right here. And I mean right here in this building when I heard somebody say a disparaging word against the Hispanic, the Latino community. Don't expect to go to heaven and be happy if you're only going to be happy around white Anglo-Saxon Americans. And Paul is saying to the Christians at Rome, don't expect to receive the promises if you can't live in a loving way with all people who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray.